I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24 this morning. Luke chapter 24. This is the third Sunday we've been in Luke chapter 24, and we've one more Sunday to go. Next week, we will bring to a close our journey with Luke through this gospel message. This morning, though, we still are rejoicing in the resurrection of Christ. This chapter began with uh, women followers of Jesus who arrived at his tomb to anoint his body, only to find that there was no body, that the tomb was empty, and angels were there to tell them, to remind them that Christ was risen just as he promised. Then last week we saw two disciples walking uh, home to Emmaus from celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem, despondent over the death of Christ whom they believed was the one who would redeem Israel. Suddenly a man came alongside them, a stranger, and asked them about the things that concerned them, the things that had saddened them, the things that they had been talking about. And of course they told them about Jesus' ministry and about his life and about his unexpected death. The stranger admonished them for their unbelief, walking them through God's word saying, Surely you saw, you should have seen that all this was necessary, that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and die and then be raised up in glory. And of course, Jesus then revealed himself to these disciples, risen from the dead. And they went to go tell these things to the apostles who themselves were struggling to believe what they were hearing, that Jesus was alive. And what did Jesus do but appear in their midst, both to gently admonish them for their lack of faith, but also to remind them what he taught, that these things indeed were expected in all the scriptures. And as Luke records all of this for us, we are to be reminded, as we think through this encounter with the risen Christ, we are to be reminded of what Jesus has now for the third time reminded his disciples. What has happened in my death and resurrection was all part of God's plan. It was a part of God's plan that he had revealed that we should see, that we should take comfort in. And he shows us these things, and we should hear these things, be mindful of them, because in this passage now, Luke recounts for us what we find again in all the Gospels, and that is Jesus' great commission to His church, His standing orders, as it were, until He returns. And that commission, those orders, that, that divine expression of will is not just for them, it's also for us today. So as we think through Luke's account of the Great Commission, the assurance and mission of the church until Jesus comes, we need to hear this as our own commission as well. So I invite you to follow along as we begin reading at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you! But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning we're mindful of this because this is what we are to be about as the church. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, then pay attention because this is what Christianity is about. This passage is essential for how we ought to live our lives today. And here's how it starts. It starts with the peace of Christ. It starts with the peace of Christ. Luke says that Jesus stood among the apostles and he said to them, peace to you or peace be upon you. It is a common greeting, but it is much more than a greeting here as Jesus offers this wishful prayer. You see, what Jesus is expressing is a biblical understanding of peace. That is, the peace of well-being and favor that comes from being known by God. What does the peace of Christ produce in His apostles? What should it produce to, in us today? First of all, it should produce within us a confident faith. A confident faith. When Jesus appears before his disciples, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They, aren't, they still aren't convinced. They've heard reports, but they are not convinced that Jesus is real. And let's just be honest. If you yourself saw someone back from the dead, even in a spirit form as a ghost, you would pretty much be scared witless. I imagine we would not be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I imagine we would be absolutely terrified. And so in that sense, we can empathize with them. But what does Jesus say? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He's already said, peace be to you. But then he's like, why are you still scared? Why do you still doubt that it's me? Now, again, kind of what we've seen all along, it's a little bit rough on Jesus' part for a way of first responding to them. But we have to remember who they are. These are Jesus' apostles. They were told time and again, Jesus would die, Jesus would be raised again. They should have expected that this was going to happen, but they haven't expected it. They hadn't connected the dots. They've been listening to Jesus, filtering all that he said through his own grid. And so now Jesus gives them a mild admonishment here. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you acting like this is something out of the blue, like you didn't know this was coming, that I didn't say this was going to happen? But notice Jesus is also kind and patient with them. Jesus speaks peace to them because that's what he wants them to experience. He wants them to take heart. He wants them to be encouraged, to have a confident faith. He doesn't want them to doubt. This is why he sets out to assure them that he has, in fact, risen from the dead. Notice how Jesus appeals to their senses. He says, see my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They saw him with their eyes, they heard him speak with their ears, and they touched his body with their hands. He's trying to, to give them all the evidence they need to know for certain this is no ghost. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, that's Luke's way of saying that they thought it was just too good to be true. Jesus said, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before him. Now what's the point? The point is, despite what you may have seen in Ghostbusters, spirits don't eat food. A ghost does not take nourishment. 
And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He is wanting them to be clear. He is not just a vision. He is not some ethereal specter. This is Jesus himself bodily risen from the grave. People want to often get hung up on all the supernatural abilities that Jesus displays after his resurrection, appearing and disappearing, moving through walls into locked rooms, uh, going away, flying up to heaven, all these things. And, and, and that leads them to doubt Jesus had a physical body. That's not the point. It's just the opposite of the point. And I would push back and say, did not Jesus walk on water when he had a physical body? I don't know anybody else that can do that with a physical body but he wasn't spirit then. What we should see are these things not pointing away from a physical body, but rather the fullness of divine glory and power that exists in Christ. He was holding back during his life, and now he is not holding back any longer. The fullness of who he is as God the Son is now given expression in all of these things. Jesus is not pointing us away from a physical body, but toward a physical body. And so as Phil Riken says, the gospel is not a ghost story. Jesus is alive. We need not doubt. He gives us peace. From that peace, from that peace, we ought to have a confident faith. But notice we also receive a gracious fellowship. A gracious fellowship. Once again, consider who Jesus is appearing to here. Where were these men just three days ago? What were they doing? All of them had abandoned Jesus. They had denied him. They had betrayed him. Think about what it must have been like to hear that he was alive. Think about the thoughts that passed through their minds. The, the, the guilt and the sorrow they felt. And when Jesus comes to him, notice the first word that he says. Peace. Peace. Very often, even if we are loving parents, even if we tend to be slow to anger when our children do something incredibly wrong, incredibly sinful, our first word is not peace. I read about one pastor uh, talking about how when he was just 16, he wrecked his father's car. And his, his mom took him to his father's office uh, and, uh, he, and he, he said, are you okay? Did you hurt anything? Did you have to go to the hospital? He goes, no. And he says, well, you're never driving my car again. For, for, forget it. Just, it's done. Just go home. Uh, do your homework. Just forget it. It's not done. It's just, it's just wrath and fury. He said later that day, he said, well, he said, uh, he said, maybe you can drive every once in a while. And then by that night, he said, son, why don't you run to the store and buy some milk for your mother? It started with wrath, righteous indignation at what this son had done. And over time, the love came through. But Jesus appears, and the first thing he says is peace. No malice, no hard feelings, no fury, no wrath at what they had done. Instead, Jesus tells his disciples not to be afraid. He is with them. He is for them. Once again, they experience fellowship with Christ. So commenting on this, Legan Duncan says, Christ knows everything there is to know about your heart. He knows everything there is that ought to condemn you. And he says, peace to you. The word you see is said here so that there is no sinner in this world who thinks they are more desirous to be forgiven than he is ready to forgive. There is no one in this world who has ever wanted to be pardoned more than he is ready to pardon. That is the heart of love, and we see it on full display as Jesus comes to his disciples.
The peace that Jesus brings by his death and resurrection is one in which sin is no longer a barrier to fellowship. There is no one ever pleading out, please God save me, please God save me, and he is begrudgingly saying, well, maybe I think I will. No, the first word that Jesus speaks, the, the, the first impulse of him towards his people is peace. Peace, forgiveness, fellowship. We are together now as one. And we experience that same peace today. We said that this passage is about the Great Commission. This is how it always begins. Who we are in Christ. The relationship that we have with Him. The Great Commission begins with our own experience of the peace of Christ. But then it progresses. It moves on as we must come to better understand the Word of Christ. We must understand the Word of Christ. In verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ had suffered on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Once again, Jesus reminds his disciples of what he previously taught. Notice he doesn't say, I'm springing something new on you. I know, you, I know that this was all something hidden up and, and it was kind of something that God and I, the Father, we had kind of to ourselves. We didn't tell you anything about this, but now here it is. That's the opposite. He says, look, let me remind you what I previously taught you. That all of these things, all of these things were contained in all the scriptures. And then he says, he opened their minds to understand. He gave them insight, understanding of what the gospel, where the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing forward and speaking to and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And we saw last week that uh, Jesus made this same point with these disciples on the way to Emmaus. And last week I said, we're going to unpack that more today, this, uh, this Sunday of this sermon. Guess what? It's today. It's this Sunday in this sermon. So we want to kind of land here for a while because I think it's important that if Jesus taught his apostles, his disciples, to read the Bible a certain way, we ought to know how to read the Bible that way as well, right? And so the question is, how do we do that? I think that probably here in this church, as a whole, we're probably better off than many Christians. But on the whole, the, 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 the church as I have experienced and encountered it, working in associations and state conventions and, and, and all over the place, I find that we do a rather poor job reading the Bible. Because we're usually driven by ourselves when we read. Our first thought is, what do I get out of this? What does it say about me? What does it say to me? And what that drives us to do is look for a kind of quick devotional boost and actually miss what God might be saying to us. Yes, we ought to ask, what do I do with this? How do I apply this? But that's not the first question we ask of the text. The first question we ask of the text in many ways is, what does this tell me about God? And specifically here, what Jesus is saying is that we ought to be asking, what does this tell me about Christ? How does this help me to better appreciate the gospel? And once we understand that, once we begin to understand that, then those questions of application will make more sense to us. So what I want to do is give some practical instructions on how we ought to look for Christ. That's the first thing. Look for Christ in the scriptures. 
We look for Christ because everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is reading the Old Testament looking for himself. That's what he teaches the disciples to do. So we ought to do the same. So the question is, what do we look for? When we're trying to read the Bible this way, what do we look for? What I want to give you are six things, six kind of directions, six ways of looking at the Old Testament in order to understand better who Jesus is and what the gospel is. It starts with pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Look for pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Properly, if you ever read a, a, a theology book, there's, these are going to be called theophanies or Christophanies. And what they're simply talking about is the appearance of Christ before he takes on flesh. So before you get to, to the gospel according to Matthew, in, in the terms of the scripture storyline, Jesus is nevertheless making an appearance. You say, how can that be? Well, remember who he is. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God. That didn't begin at the, crea- at the incarnation. That didn't begin when he was born as a baby. That has always been his role as God the Son. So it's not surprising that before he takes on flesh, he is fulfilling the same role. He is revealing the Father to humanity. And so we see him appearing, for example, to Abraham in Mamre. We see him wrestling with Jacob throughout the night. We see him coming to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's army. Now the tricky thing is, When Moses writes about these things, he will often, or the prophets as well, he will often talk about the angel of the Lord. And in our minds, angel means angel. It means, you know, Roma Downey and all those, you know, uh, slightly aging, angelic, fuzzy, blurred camera picture people, you know, doing amazing things with glowy lights behind their head. That's what we think when we hear the word angel, if we're into pop culture, right? If we're into the Bible, we think of these massive warriors or bizarre creatures with multiple wings and eyes and feet and legs, and they're kind of doing weird things, right? My point to say is, rather than technical terms like we just sung about, seraphim, cherubim, angel just means messenger in the Bible. And so it might be a cherubim, it might be a seraphim, it might be an angel as we think of it, or it might just be a messenger. And in this way, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, is often Christ himself. They say, well, how do I tell the difference? Very simply, angels never accept worship from humanity. They kind of have a freak out. Don't do that, they say. No, 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 don't do that. I'm just a servant like you. Don't, don't, you can't do that. But when Christ appears, he joyfully, gladly receives the worship of God's people. So as you're reading through the Old Testament and you see this angelic being, maybe he's been called an angel, maybe he's called a man who had an appearance of God or an angel, and and they bow down to worship and he just stands there and receives it, guess what you're seeing? Christ, before he's Christ. You're seeing God the Son. So look for those things. That's kind of an easy thing, right? That's pretty simple to do. Here's another simple one to do. Uh, Secondly, look for prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Most Christians actually enjoy this kind of thing, right? Uh, We we love to be reading the Bible and see God say, okay, when Jesus comes, this is what it's going to be like. And then we can flip through New Testament. Hey, that's exactly what it was like, right? So all of the how, the when, the where details of Jesus coming into the world, that's what we're looking for. Those are ways in which the Old Testament is pointing towards the gospel. And if you're on any kind of a regular reading schedule of the Bible, going through the whole Bible, whether it's one year, two year, 90 days, whatever it is, those things are going to start becoming immediately obvious to you. Because you're going to get to the New Testament, having read the Old Testament, and say, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. 
And if you've got any kind of a Bible that has little notes that run down the middle like that, there's going to be a little thing saying, hey, guess what? This is talked about in the Old Testament. And you go back there and say, hey, he's fulfilling a prophecy. And then as you start becoming familiar with the New Testament and seeing the ways the apostles saying prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, this took place because it was written, da 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 quote scripture, you'll go back to the reading the Old Testament and say, hey, I remember that's in the New Testament. And you'll just naturally begin to see these things. If you are impatient like me and don't want to wait, then just Google prophecies fulfilled by Christ and you'll get about 350, a big massive list of them online. Third, we need to look for promises fulfilled in Christ. Promises fulfilled in Christ. And here's where it gets a little trickier. Because this is not as obvious all the time. The Old Testament is driven by God's promises. Sometimes these are formal. We call them covenants. Other times they are informal to specific people or about specific things. But Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 1, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In Greek, it's the word amen. Think about that. You, you, you pray this prayer, and at the end, you say amen. God, may it be done. May you do it. And Paul is saying, when God makes a promise, God's amen is Christ. All, all of the promises of God are fulfilled in him. And so sometimes there's an immediate fulfillment of the promise, but what we see is that there is always a fuller, a final fulfillment a greater fulfillment that comes in Jesus. So for example, the most uh, famous one probably is the reason why we even have a great commission is God made a covenant promise to Abraham. Do you remember that? Before there was ever in Israel, there was an Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons. You are one of them and so am I, so let's just praise the Lord, right? What was the promise that he made? I will be, I will be your God, you will be my servant, I will bless you, I'll make your name great, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That sounds like a pretty cool promise. And how does God fulfill it? He first fulfills it through Isaac, the giving of a son. Then he fulfills it through Isaac by giving us Israel as the nation. And then from Israel, the nations are blessed because God is manifesting himself in the presence of that people. But guess what? Israel kind of fails in that task. They are not a good servant. They are not ones that the nations look at and say, we want to we worship your God. Instead, the prophets condemn Israel and say, you've made the name of the Lord a byword among the nations. They mock you and despise you because of your sin. So guess who comes? From the line of Abraham, the perfect Israelite Christ. And now we understand in a greater way all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham, why? Because from Abraham came Jesus, the Messiah for the world. That's what Paul explains in Galatians 3 and 4. So when you're looking at the promises of God, we need to be asking ourselves, in what way, in what way has Christ come and fulfilled this promise in its ultimate, perfect, and final sense? Four, as we read the Old Testament, you look for problems resolved in Christ. Problems resolved in Christ. Humanity faces many problems and experiences many needs, and it's been like that ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin. Sometimes, again, there are immediate solutions, but ultimately and finally, our problems are only resolved in Christ. So think about this list of problems. How do we undo the curse of Adam? Eve is looking at Cain's, looking at Seth, looking at Noah. Everybody's asking, is this the promised son? Is this the promised son? And none of them are. How do we undo the curse in Adam? 
Christ undoes the curse in Adam. He's the new Adam. How can we keep the law? How can God forgive sin and still be just? How can we experience close, intimate fellowship with God like they had in the garden, walking with Him? How can we experience close fellowship with one another as friends or as married couples? How can there be justice and mercy in the world for the poor and needy? How can evil be stopped and yet war come to an end? How do we find hope in the midst of personal suffering? How can we overcome death? All those questions only have one right answer. Christ. Christ. The whole gamut of human struggle finds resolution in Him. He rights every wrong, He calms every fear, and He meets every need. So read the Scriptures in light of the person and work of Christ, and when problems arise, you see that they are resolved in Christ. Fifth, look for patterns that are realized by Christ. Look for patterns realized by Christ. Now, when I talk about pattern, what are we talking about? I'm talking about any repeated theme, event, or institution found in the Old Testament. Okay, so something that comes up over and over and over and over again. All right, so one that we've talked about before is the theme of rest. In Genesis God rests from his creative work. The seventh day ends open, uh, open-ended with God resting. And, and, and you never have morning and evening the seventh day. It just says God rests on the seventh day. And later, you see Joshua coming. And in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and his covenant with Israel, we see that Joshua leads Israel into the promised land, defeats all their enemies. And we're told at the end of that book that Joshua gave Israel rest in the land from all their, for all their enemies. Oh, we see a connection here. God resting from work, Joshua giving the people rest. But guess what? A couple hundred years later, David writes Psalm 95. You know what he says? He says, today, enter God's rest. David, you're in the land. I thought you had rest. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 tells us David understood that physical rest was not spiritual rest. Physical rest was meant to point us towards spiritual rest. And so in that sense, Joshua can't provide rest, but a better Joshua can. A better Joshua named Jesus can fulfill all righteousness, can satisfy God's wrath. And so now we can rest from our sin. We can rest from our striving for salvation. We can rest spiritually in Christ. Think about the institutions of the priests of the temple and the sacrifices. Such a crucial role in the life of Israel. That didn't just start with Israel. You had Adam offering the first sacrifice to provide garments for Adam and Eve after their sin. You see the patriarchs offering sacrifices out of thanksgiving and worship to God. But all of those things become formalized in Israel as we see the gracious system given to them that they, a sinful people, might dwell with God, a holy divine being. But it never ended until Jesus came. Full and lasting atonement was not realized until Christ offered himself on the cross where priest, temple, and sacrifice all came together in him. And we can see all kinds of themes and patterns like that that run through the whole Bible. Kingdom, covenant, sonship, marriage, reconciliation, exile, all those things ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. The last one, number six, look for persons superseded by Christ. Look for persons superseded by Christ. We see in people all throughout the Bible examples of what Christ will do, but in better ways. Ezra shepherds God's people by living out God's word and teaching them to do the same. Ezra 7.10. 
Esther is prepared to die at the hands of the king attempting to save her people. Esther 4, 12 through 17. David is a man after God's own heart who reigns as king over Israel. 2 Samuel. How much more did Christ obey perfectly the word of his father and teach others to do the same? How much more was Christ willing to lay down his life to save his people and did it? How much more was Christ the Father's beloved Son? In this way, we have some examples, some good, all fallible, but all pointing towards Jesus who would do what they did only better, only perfect. Sometimes the supersession comes by way of contrast too, right? There are far more wicked kings in Israel than good ones. There are false prophets as well as true ones. For every David, there is an Ahab. For every Isaiah, there is a Jonah. There are many sinful people who failed and leave bad examples, and Christ now stands in righteous contrast to all of them. He did what they could not do. So those are six directions, six ways that as you read through the Old Testament, you can be trying to do what Jesus taught his apostles to do. Look for the gospel in all the scriptures. But as we seek to do that, we must read carefully. That's the second thing. We must read carefully. And so here what I want to do is give you two cautions. Number one, you have to always remember the context. You have to always remember the context. So what you don't do is just flip open um, Ecclesiastes 2. Where's Jesus here? That's not what you do. Because if you do that, you're going to mess it up. You all, like any good Bible study, you have to start with the there and the then. You have to start with what is the text saying? What is the text saying by the people it was written to? And then you pull out from there and say, how is it fulfilled in Christ? Only then are you going to be able to actually connect the dots in appropriate ways. Secondly, remember the application. Remember the application. Sometimes people get caught up in Christ-centeredness and they despise do's and don'ts. I had a friend in seminary and sometimes also called redemptive historical preaching. And that's what he was all about. To the point that if your sermon didn't end with one application, trust Jesus, he thought you were doing it wrong. Thought you were doing it wrong. So you couldn't say be generous. Couldn't say be loving. You couldn't say strive for holiness. No, 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 no. Trust Jesus. That's it. That's all you can do. Well, there's a problem with that. That's not what the letters say, is it? That's not what Paul's letters, not what Peter's letters. They give very specific, pointed application. So what I'm telling you is don't divorce robust Christ-centered theology from Christ-honoring living. And if you just want one example of this, just go back and read Hebrews tonight. Read Hebrews. Here is a book like no other. It's actually a sermon, a word of exhortation, according to the author, And it pulls together the threads of the Old Testament in some of the most beautiful ways. But why does he do it? Why does he pull together all of these themes? Because he wants to provide moral exhortation to his readers. He says, look to Christ, then live for his glory. Rest in his salvation, then relentlessly pursue service and holiness in his name. That's why he writes, and that's how we ought to read the Bible as well. Now, for some of you, all of that seemed incredibly academic. You may not have been taking notes, you may not have been listening, you may not care, but here's why I want to tell you it's important. 
It's important because what we're seeking to do is to again and again and again and again be gripped by the gospel of God that he has written into the very fabric of history and the individual lives and movements and systems and events of the life of his people from the beginning. And if we don't understand that, if we don't see that, if we don't read the Bible in that way, then we are not going to be ready for or energized to participate in the mission of Christ. And that's the last part of the passage that we want to see this morning, the mission of Christ. We experience the peace of Christ, we understand the word of Christ, and all of that makes us ready for the mission of Christ. And that begins with the presence of witnesses, the presence of witnesses. Notice that now the gospel has been fulfilled in history. It is to be proclaimed for the salvation of sinners. Jesus says, verse 46, It is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus has not only provided an explanation of the gospel from all the scriptures, proving that what he accomplished was God's long-promised plan, but now he tells them, you will be witness to these things. You've seen and you've experienced the fulfillment of God's promises. You've seen the gospel unfold. You've watched me die on the cross. You've seen me rise from the dead. And now you are the witnesses that will be the foundation for everything that comes later. You are the foundation of our mission, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. But that doesn't mean they're the only ones engaged in the mission. Remember what we saw last week? Without having, even having to been told, the immediate response of knowing Jesus was raised back to life was to go tell somebody. And that is what should be a part of all of our lives. Every Christian is called to bear witness to Christ. We've based our faith in the witness of the apostles in God's word, and now we share that same witness with others. And we bear testimony to its truth by our own faith in Christ. Notice, though, when we talk about witness, we're not talking about, in this context, our lives so often you will hear the phrase, the witness of our lives. And I know what people mean. Character counts. How we live makes a difference. But the Bible does not ever use the word that way, at least that I've ever seen. The Bible talks about witness in terms of what we say. So when the Bible talks about our great commission, it is essential that we understand we are to be proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel. It is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. This is the nuts and bolts of the Great Commission, friends. It, it, it's not that we're loving people. It's not that we're nice people. It's not that we're good people. As, as fine and dandy as all that is, it's that we're a preaching people. That's what the Great Commission's about. You've probably... Get sick of hearing it because it comes up all the time throughout the scriptures and because we make a big deal about it at this church as elders. But let's just, let's just put the pinpoint on it once more. Without verbal proclamation of the gospel of Christ and a call for people to put their faith in him, repenting from their sins, there is no mission. Today we want to label all kinds of things as mission. Even good things. Digging wells, building homes, cleaning parks. Those are all amazingly good things. Things that we should be involved in. But that is not the mission of the church. 
And if we don't make that clear, it will become the mission of the church and we won't fulfill our duty and our calling, which is to preach Christ, to preach Christ, to preach Christ. That's what we're called to do. Don't blur the lines. Where are we to preach Christ? He should be proclaimed to all nations, Jesus says in verse 47. All nations. Does that mean that we leave the country for short-term and long-term trips for a lifetime of overseas missions? Yes, for some of us. It can't be any less than that, right? Doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going, but somebody has to go. If we all stay, it won't get done. In fact, there are other countries now that per capita send more missionaries than we do, and they have far less resources. That's a shame on our house. As our own denomination now, because of the lack of giving to cooperative program missions, we send less than one half a percent of all our members to the mission field. I thought we were about tithing, but apparently we don't tithe our people. When I first came to this church, in light of a calling to pastor here, I was out at the Bob Evans right down there on Wilder talking with some other leaders and pastors in our denomination. I remember telling them that uh, all throughout college and in seminary, uh, though I felt a call to pastoral ministry, I also felt a call to missions, and, and that I struggled to know where God wanted me to land. And one of the other pastors said, you don't need to go there. We've got plenty of lost people here in Michigan. Yes, I know, but that misses the point of missions. Because while we have lots of lost people in Michigan, we have lots of not lost people. We have lots of Christians. We have lots of churches in Michigan. But there are entire countries, entire people groups where there's no church, there's no Christian, there's no gospel, and there is deep, deep lostness. Who's going to tell them? How are they going to hear that the Great Commission might be fulfilled, the gospel might be preached to all nations? So, so you only have two options, basically. You either stay and proclaim repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name to all of those around you and then support those who are called to go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name. All of us are called to engage in the Great Commission. It's not a matter of skill. It's not a matter of calling. All of us have this calling as God's people. The question is simply where and how. Are you going to do it here faithfully with family and friends and neighbors and strangers? Or are you going to go to the world and do it? And perhaps like Paul, be a pioneer and name the name of Christ where he's never been named before. Those that go, Paul says, have a right to be supported by those who stay. Which means that from the overflow of God's generosity and grace to us, comes grace and generosity towards them. So that working together, the church is built up and strengthened in the, at home so that the church can launch out those that will go and take the gospel to other places and grow up and raise up a strong church there as well. That is what our mission is about. How are we going to do it? How are we going to be successful in this? This is the last thing that we see, the promise of the Father the promise of the Father. Imagine being the apostles on that day, listening to the risen Christ. Suddenly he says, I'm alive and you're going to go tell the world about it. What? Jesus, don't you know who we are? We're just fishermen. We got one tax collector. 
but he dresses like a dandy. He's not traveling anywhere over long distances. Look at this guy. He's wearing Brooks Brothers, for goodness sake. No dungarees. We don't know what to do. We don't know what, what, where, where to go. Gentiles, the nations, they hate us. They despise us. It's just the first century, Jesus, and there's already anti-Semitism across the world. How are we going to do this? And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't, don't run out now. You wait, and the promise of the Father will come. What is the promise of the Father? He's already told them in the upper room. During the Last Supper, it's the promise of the Spirit that will come and indwell and empower His people for the mission He's called them to. Look, let's just be honest. Left to ourselves, the mission is not going to get done. It will not be accomplished. But because we have the promise of the Father, because we have the Spirit, there is a certainty that it will be accomplished, that it will be done, because God will ensure it. You say, well, how, well, how, how do we know that's true? Just read Acts. Go, this afternoon, sit down, read the whole book, or just look at Peter's life. Think about where he was three days ago. Ashamed of Jesus cowering in fear before a servant girl, denying with foul language that he knows Jesus. In 40 days, Peter will stand boldly before a crowd, declaring Christ, suffering jail, disregarding threats for the sake of the gospel. What's the difference? What happened to this guy? The resurrection of Christ bore out in his life by the power of the Spirit of Christ. That's the difference in Peter's life. That's why the apostles can go and spearhead this great commission. They have the Spirit of Christ. And here's the thing, friends. If you are a believer, it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, a missionary, a deacon, a community group leader, a custodian, an engineer, a stay-at-home mom, a student at school. If you are a believer, you have the same Spirit with the same measure of power in your life. And you have the same calling to join in this mission of Christ to take the gospel where it's never been named. Whether it's with historical tools like charts and a sextant or modern technology like GPS systems, plotting the right course is always essential for navigation. You need to know where you are and you need to know where you're going. And if your calculations are off by even a few degrees, you may not notice it over the short distance, but over the long haul, it could be disastrous. This is what happened back in 1979. It was a relatively short sightseeing trip from New Zealand to Antarctica and back, and a two-degree mistake in navigation put them 30 miles off course flying over Antarctica, and ultimately the plane crashed into a volcano. Two degrees. And 257 passengers were killed. Sometimes we come to a passage like this and we just think, yeah, we've heard it all before. We, we, we know what it's all about. But we are prone to drift. We are prone to get off course. We are prone for a million good reasons in our mind to begin clicking the dial of navigation just one degree, just one degree, just one degree. And maybe that's out of sinful intentionality or maybe it's completely out of unintentional neglect but we get off course in small ways and we don't notice it immediately. But over time, we get far away from, God want, from where God wants us to be. So when we come to a passage like this, we need to be reminded of who we are, what God has done in our life, and what God is calling us to. And the reality is, if we don't like that, then we ought to rethink whether or not we're really a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, you gotta hate your family if you're going to love me. 
You gotta be willing to leave it all behind if you're gonna follow after me. You gotta, you gotta be willing to make me the great treasure of your life where nothing else matters besides me. Now, is he patient with us? Yes, he is. And he allows us time to grow into that. But that's the trajectory of our lives. Most of us get to love our families. Most of us don't have to get rid of our stuff. Most of us rarely have to move anywhere that we don't want to. The question is, are you willing? Are you asking? Are you, have you laid your life before God like a blank check and said, you write out how you want me to fulfill your great commission? whether it's at home, whether it's abroad, whether it's with a lot of giving, whatever it is. And listen for God to tell you. Let us remind ourselves of the confidence we have because of the peace of Christ, the encouragement that we should receive that this plan has been worked from time began all throughout the scriptures by the word of Christ. And let us commit to preach the gospel of Christ knowing that we have his spirit the spirit of our risen Savior dwelling in us to ensure this mission is accomplished. Father, that's my prayer for myself and for your people here at Crossway. God, we pray that you would help us to not only love Jesus for the forgiveness that we have, but Father, also help us to be committed disciples, to follow him into the great spiritual war that is the Great Commission, to find ourselves preaching Christ wherever we go because of the great love we have for him driven by the great love that you had for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.